The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in February 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Alice Ripley. Hi, Alice. Hello. Let me just run through a few of your shows so our listeners at home know what uh, what shows you've been in. Currently, a show called Next to Normal, which is running at Second Stage here in New York, in La Mis as Fantine. You've been in The Who's Tommy, Sunset Boulevard, Tony nominated for playing Violet Hilton in Sideshow, also in The Rocky Horror Show, and now Next to Normal. I don't want to say too much about the plot line of Next to Normal, but um, let me just read a little bit from the Second Stage website giving away a little bit of it based on what they've written. How does an almost average family navigate today's overstimulated and overmedicated world? In this darkly funny and haunting new musical, one suburban household confronts its past and its future. And you are the central character. You play Diana Goodman, who is a woman, who's a mother, who's a wife. And you tell us about, about Diana, about the show. The show is a story about a, a, a not-so-average completely average family in suburbia somewhere, unspecified, um, who is trying to keep it all together in this day and age of uh, us coming to terms with this veil of tears that we're forced to live on this earth. We, we fled the city. We went to the suburbs. We're trying to make it look great. And the show starts out that way. And then it quickly disintegrates before your eyes. And you see that Diana is mentally challenged as far as her um, her integration of everything that's that's demanded of her every day and so she ends up um, going through many things to try to come to terms with with all of that well just to show how normal this average American family is there's a very cute number toward the beginning of Act one about Costco the uh, the, uh, the the store where your character goes shopping at Costco so it's like like you say, a typical average American family, but not without their problems. Yeah, and I think that at Costco, sometimes it's a little overwhelming to be there, and, and that's illustrated in the number. And, and Di- you know, Diana has a... She has a loss that she has not grieved, that, that she has suppressed rather than grieved, and and that causes a break in her. And she ends up taking, you know, going to her psychopharmacologist and taking different cocktails to try to deal with her, what's turning out to be some kind of disorder, mental disorder. And um, I don't want to give away too much more, but that's kind of how it starts. Well, if you think think of women taking various colors and various shaped pills of every sort, basically, popping popping a lot of pills Mm -hmm. and dealing with a lot of problems. There are Mike and Ikes and Tums and... Tic Tacs, I think. That's what the prop guy uses Oh, in, in, in real life? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's his job to separate them all and put them in their little jars. He does have to separate them after each performance? He does. I watch him. Mm. <laughs> He's back there. His name's Marcus. Well, the, the scene you're referring to, she dumps all the pills into a, into a wastebasket. That's why he has to separate them afterwards, right? Yeah. She yeah. decides that, that the pharmaceuticals that she's been taking all these years have been keeping her away from really feeling her life. And she sees her teenage kids and wants to get involved in their lives more deeply and so then decides to just, you know, go without them. And that's what happens in that number with all the pills going into the trash can. <laughs> From what's been said already, it's going to be apparent to our listeners that 
the this is not your average fluffy musical. The range that you have to play in this show is enormous, from manic depressive comedy, drama, etc. What was it like tackling a role this complex in a musical form? I, with all due respect to everything I've ever done, and I've done some really wonderful things on stage, I think, as far as the teams I've been involved with and the pieces that I've worked on, and with all due respect to that, um, it, this makes all of that seem easy. M- makes it seem um, uh, kind of like I was skating along because next to normal demands of the audience as well as the cast, the community, it demands a certain uh, um, self-examination, I guess. And and and. Uh, I think maybe it demanded the most of me because it really kind of is the story of Diana, and um, it was it, it was not without its hurdles. Um, they're halfway up the mountain. I wondered if I was going to make it, and a couple weeks ago, it started to feel manageable. The show started to feel um, like a, there was a formula that I could follow, and, and by the end of the show I would feel energized rather than devastated by it. But she does go through a lot of different emotions, and and therefore the audience goes along with that. And um, it's a relatively small cast, so we've kind of formed this strong net. We all catch each other when we need to. Well, the show is not totally sung through, but it's it's mostly music, mostly singing. A lot of it is really all-out singing, a lot of uh, rock influence. You, of course, have your own rock band called Ripley. You've done music a lot. How does that inform your, your performance? In other words, your your background, not only in, in, in stage roles, which you just mentioned, but also as a rock uh, band singer yourself. What have you done to prepare for the role, and what do you do on a day-to-day basis to stay in shape, to perform all-out music for eight shows a week? Well, you're right. It is almost completely sung through, especially the second act, and, and the piece has a, has an operatic tone to it. By that, mean, by that I mean the dramatic tone of the show is reminds me of something like the console by Minotti or or some other contemporary composer that would write a one act of of dramatic music and it would of course be sung through because it would be an opera this reminds me of a piece like that and that is part of what makes it demanding there is no chance to to go off stage and go hmm once you're on the boat you, you have to have have your shit together or you're in trouble because there's no place to pause um, the second act, especially, I only I only leave stage once to get changed, and and I'm on about thirty seconds later. So there is there is that that demand on you from the piece on me as an actor to be in shape to meet this kind of challenge. And I don't know what it's going to sound like to the listeners, but it does feel like you. I need to have an athletic edge, and not only physically, but mentally. I have to have an, an, an edge to be able to pull this off, get out of the way, deliver the piece, and, and be energized by it at the end, as opposed to devastated and drained when I go home to my little house on Long Island. <laughs> well, as you sit here today, you're sipping a cup of hot tea. I saw you put a lot of honey into it. Do you do anything special for your voice or for your body in terms of preparing each day for the role? Any special foods or exercise or whatever? Well, I have a warm-up and a warm-down that uh-huh. I do every day. And um, and I do... I'm, I'm strict about what I put into my body, food-wise and otherwise, because 
it shows immediately in your singing voice. The singing voice is the the soul. It's where the physical meets the metaphysical, and and I think that you know you have to be you have to eat food that your body can easily assimilate and doesn't get in the way. So I do drink a lot of tea. I, th- I happen to think honey is is great for clearing your respiratory system. So I eat a lot of honey, and I you know it's always a challenge to figure out what to eat in between shows on a two show day. Sushi is usually a good thing, but you know it's it's touching. You have to make sure you eat just the right thing because you don't want to be weighed down by it. You know, I mean, it sounds like you don't even need to say these things, but you do because it's so easy in the city to just grab, you know, anything and eat it, and and you can't always do that when you're when you're kind of running a marathon. <laughs> well, I want to come back to what you say is the ride that you take, particularly in the second act. You're on the boat. Obviously, with that continuous a score, that certainly drives the pace of your performance. I mean, that's self-evident with any musical, but it seems that in the moods and the swings that you have to take in this character, you really are on a treadmill that dictates the pace of your performance. Is that helpful, or is that something that at times you you fight against? That's a really interesting question to think think of answering because yes it does feel like if you don't if you aren't ready when the gun goes off you're not going to be ready you have tomorrow to try again you, you know there is no such thing as a false start when they do that downbeat you have to be ready to go and and I do get nervous sometimes before I go out because of that um, and I think that during rehearsals during previews I had I was one of many people in the theater who were having who was having a struggle with the demands that were being placed on me by this piece, and and it, it comes from that idea that, that you said, Howard, about the treadmill. You know that it does feel like you're jumping on a treadmill that's already going. So, like the and for instance, the the first scene in the show, the opening lines, it it was real tricky to figure out what that was, what that tone of that scene was going to be, because it did feel to me during rehearsals that. There was a treadmill already going, and I had to jump on. And how was I going to make sure that that, that jumping on was clean and precise and, and in, in unison with the treadmill without, some, you know, without pushing it or being behind it? I think that we found it, but it did take a while to find that tone. And during the rehearsals of the show, I hope we made clear already that this is a new musical – did the authors adjust the material as the actors dealt with figuring out how to play this this tough piece? Yes, they did. And from day one, when we were all in the meet and greet, standing in a circle with everybody from Second Stage and Michael Greif and Anthony Rapp and everybody in the cast and all the designers, you know, we all looked at each other and we looked at Brian and Tom, Brian Yorkie and Tom Kitt, who wrote the piece, and everybody kept throwing it back to them. You know, they were all supporting supporting the piece from their very beginning. And so, yes, there, there, were, there were changes that were made. Songs were cut, songs were added, lines were tweaked, lyrics were tweaked until the last minute, until I finally said, stop, you guys, you have to stop now. That's it. You've got to leave it alone for a while and let it grow. Um, I said it with a smile on my face and with love in my heart. But I did have to say, okay, no more tweaking. Because, yes, there were, there were a lot of changes. And Tom Kitt, the composer, gave me a lot of wonderful tailoring uh, appointments with the score to tailor it to what I felt the most comfortable doing as a singer. Are there things that went away that had helped you find your character that are no longer in the show? 
Yes, and and I'm glad they were there, and I'm glad they're gone. <laughs> For example, there was a song. The the opening number used to be. A pre, there was always a pre-prise to the show, which is still there, and then it's it's bookended with a with a with the you know the other half of that same song at the end. So it's not really a pre-prise because it doesn't. It's like you know bookended with the song, and then there was a, a number right after that. Um, where it's kind of like a country feel, like a slow country feel song of just being alone in the middle of the night. And, and, you know, that's when everything kind of comes up for me is in the middle of the night. And I did learn a lot about Diana through that song and through the lyrics, but then it's the show is better without it. Hmm. So, you know, those trunk songs, they're, they exist in the trunk, and then that's where they belong. I don't want to gloss over a name you just mentioned, which struck me as very interesting. You mentioned Michael Greif, of course, the director, and then you mentioned Anthony Rapp. And people have to look in the back of the program to see that Anthony Rapp is the assistant director on this show. What's it like having another actor in there? He's very low-key. He's just like one of the coolest guys ever, so it doesn't surprise me that his name's in the back of the program instead of the front. Um, He's been Michael's, one of Michael's assistants, assistant directors. There's an assistant director, which is Anthony, and an assistant to the director was somebody else named Jade, Jade King Carroll, Jade King Carroll, or Jade Carroll. <laughs> She's got three names. She expects me to remember all of them. <laughs> um, and so Anthony was there all during every day in rehearsal, and he was kind of helping Michael bring everything to life on stage. And then later in the process, after Tech Week during previews, Anthony was there giving us notes, interpreting Michael's notes, and you know, I mean. It's Anthony well, Rapp. But usually the assistant director doesn't have their own recognition as a star performer on Broadway. So right. it's it's interesting. And I wonder, you know, does it change the dynamic of the normal director-assistant director relationship? It's an interesting story behind that because Anthony used to be in the cast of the show up until just, you know, a few workshops, like the last workshop before the actual production. He played Dr. Madden. He played the doctor's. And then that was recast a couple of times, and now you can see that, you know, the actor that's playing Dr. Madden now is probably a better choice than than Anthony was. But Anthony really was a major part of the cast for years. He was kind of like the center of that skeleton of people that that were in the cast together that moved from workshop to workshop. And And then He's an incredible, you know, rock singer. Uh, and the, the actor playing the doctor now is Asa Summers. Asa Summers. And the fellow playing your husband, uh, Dan, is Brian Darcy James, which mm-hmm. you just mentioned that. You t- talk briefly about uh, finding the character Diana Goodman. This woman has problems, to say the least. How did you find Diana? In other words, how did you come to, to interpret her? And how emotionally draining is that for you? Because you're on stage pretty much the whole time of a two-and-a-half-hour, very strong, powerful performance. Well, part of the process was um, research, reading about the different subjects, the medical community, mm-hmm. the pharmaceuticals, being a parent. I'm not a parent myself. Being a parent, um, architect. She went to architect uh, to school to study architecture with her husband Dan at the time. They weren't married when they went to school together, but they were. You know, they were in college together, studying architecture. Looked at that. It's kind of like built, kind of like a little gauzy, gauzy frame around where the character might sit background you don't want to get too saturated because 
there's only so many hours in the day. And then, and then the rehearsal process itself is very, very much like being put through the, one of those old ringers instead of, instead of an electric dryer that my grand, my granny had one of those ringers, you put the wet clothes in and you ring it, comes out almost dry and kind of feels like going through one of those squeegeed through rehearsal by force, basically. (laughs) You don't have a choice. And through, through that trial by fire, you learn what the absolute essentials are emotionally and technically for the character and then and then whether or not you can actually find the balance between the technique and the emotion that's something that's always a question mark and i think that we have found it now but there was a time there i was wondering if it was going to happen because when i have a fight with brian darcy james on stage he plays my husband dan like you said you know, and I throw the cutlery across the stage, mm-hmm. it's easy to forget that it's not really happening because it's very realistically written, very realistically staged and acted. And, you know, the lighting always in, always um, informs the emotion and the lighting on the show is, is wonderful by Kevin Adams. And so the lighting comes, the cut lighting comes in and really kind of informs the emotion. And it's easy to forget this isn't real. And then, then you, when I really, sc- if I really scream at him, then I have a vocal problem that develops and so you don't want to do that so in other words I have to keep a gate mm-hmm. on the emotion through almost the entire piece which is something I had to learn through rehearsal and that was one of the things that I couldn't have prepared for the way I did by reading about you know the things that I mentioned before and when you go home to Long Island does it take you a while to come down from the emotional highs yes I always I stand in the shower I, and when I lived in LA I was sat in a bathtub which is my favorite but now it's a shower. Just stand in the shower and kind of, kind of see the, the the piece as a one giant canvas, and I look at it and I see how it was that night, and I try to imagine if I had paintbrush, what I would, ch- what colors I would change, and and you know, which ones I would leave alone, and and you know, I, I do, I do definitely go through like a warm down. Physically, I do a vocal warm down, but I do a warm down mentally too. I do. I make myself crazy. Let's go from the present to the past. And before Alice Ripley became an actress, you were working in the music business. You had for a while worked in Nashville, and I guess also on the West Coast, was it? Yeah, well, I've been in musical theater since I was 14, and that was a really Uh long time ago. But um, I went to college and studied musical theater, and then, you know, got out of college and got my equity card. But then I moved to Nashville because I started writing music, and I wanted to just kind of see what that was like to just sit there for a little while. I was there for about a half a year. And uh, that's where I met my husband, Shannon, in Nashville. He's a drummer. And um, and then we decided to come to New York, and it was a good, it was a good decision. And since then, I've, I've continued writing music. And I, I do it... I also paint. I do it to keep from going insane. I do it to keep from going crazy, just to keep the creative... Juice is kind of spinning out stream of consciousness so that eventually something good comes out and you can capture it on some some media. So have you ever been tempted, you, you write really more in a rock idiom, uh, have you been tempted to write for the musical theater? Definitely. I mean, I have that, that's like a golden dream of mine now that seems so far away compared to everything else I've accomplished because I, I it's a sacred place for me. So it's kind of scary to imagine doing something but I have I have begun writing a piece with a friend of mine his name is Michael Roth and in the regional theater circuit he's very well known um, he works on both coasts and he's this very gifted contemporary composer 
influenced by um, classical music as well as contemporary music, um, Philip Glass and John Cage. And he and I started writing a piece together a couple years ago. And it's it's not really a musical, but it's a it's it's a performance piece with music and scenes. And I mean, it really is a musical, but it doesn't feel like one formula formulaically. Is that a word? Formula wise, it doesn't feel like a musical. It's it's an it's going to be five movements, and um, it's a mass, which doesn't really mean anything to either of us because we're not particularly religious. But we wanted that form because it's five movements, each fifteen minutes long, and each kind of capture or trying to ca- we're trying to capture an, an interesting a human interest story of of recent years you know that people might know about and put that in each in each movement and and we're we've done the first two movements and we have the third movement kind of sketched out around Henry Darger who's an artist um you, one you of those outsider of artists. I yeah, believe. you might have heard of him. He 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 was a, he wrote a book that's eighteen thousand pages long and doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> and then he also painted these beautiful panoramic um, landscape. He wrote painted on butcher paper. And after he died, they found this huge amount of art that he had created. And now there's like a book this thick on mm-hmm. his on his work, and his work is. Exhibited, you know, on a tour, so. and that's just one element of what you're that's writing. That's the third. So. That's the credo. The credo <laughs> is going to be about Henry Darger, I think. But I probably shouldn't say anything else because, you know, you can't give your creative ideas away. <laughs> that's mm. right. So, Let, let's talk about you getting into acting. Now, you got out of school. You were in Nashville. You came to New York. What was what were your early roles? What, what did you do first act, as an actor? Um, well, you mean before I got to New York? Either before you got said? to New York or when you got to New York. My first role was when I was 14, and that was A Monkey in the Wizard of Oz. You know, <laughs> typically, right. I auditioned for Dorothy and typically didn't get that one, got the other one, the quirky one. That's a very auspicious start. Yes. <laughs> At Lakewood Little Theater in Lakewood, Ohio. And, um, and then I went off to do all the, uh, you know, I did Shakespeare festivals in the summer in college, I, and I did musicals in college, and then... And then I did the Mikado right out of college. And then I think I started to do more original work once I got my equity card. And then I didn't really want to do anything but uh-huh. new work. And you do have to do the classics, and there's nothing wrong with doing that every now and then. But I still prefer the original work because it feel it might be a an illusion, but it feels like, or a delusion. As an actor, it feels like you own more of what's going on when it's new, when it's a revival and somebody else has already done it. You can't help but kind of bow to what they've done and steal most of it because it's probably, the, you know, they're probably the best choices have already been made by somebody like Patti Lapone or Bernadette Peters. For example, I did Song and Dance at the Kennedy Center. Mm-hmm. It's actually called Tell Me on a Sunday, this version, because it's only the, the, first, the one act of Song and Dance. And, you know, Bernadette Peters is, was a huge influence on me when I was learning how to sing, and, and I've always really admired her work. And so she was the original Emma, and, and I couldn't help but kind of like you know channel her in certain areas and and it was to my to my advantage to do so but then when you're working on something new it's it's more vulnerable you know i've never felt more vulnerable vulnerable than i do in in next to normal but at the same time it's more satisfying because you own you feel like you own more of it you made your Broadway debut as Fontaine in La Mis. How did you Actually, get... my Broadway debut was with Tommy. Was, w- the was, who's was Tommy? with Tommy? Oh, okay. So Tommy, the Who's Tommy was your, your debut? Yes. Yeah. How, did you, how did you get that role? Well, that was typical because I lived in California right out of college for five years before I moved to Nashville and then I went to New York. 
um, shortly thereafter. But uh, while I was in California, you know, I worked at the Playhouse. That's where I got my equity card at the La Jolla Playhouse. Des Mackinoff was the artistic director, and then Michael Greif later. But while I was there working, Des, I got my equity card by doing a musical that Des had written at the Playhouse, and this was back in the 80s. And then, you know, when you audition for a New York company and you're auditioning in San Diego, you never get you never get cast. You have to go to New York to get cast in a La Jolla Playhouse production <laughs> or in a New York production. But in this case, I, I was in La Jolla. I went to New York shortly thereafter and auditioned for Tommy that was going to be at the La Jolla Playhouse, and I got cast, went back to La Jolla and worked. Mm -hmm. And then I was cast in the Broadway company, and then I was, you know, this is just a few months after I moved to New York. So... It was the right place to go, I guess, at the right time. And pretty good timing. Yeah. Yeah. I happened to see Tommy out at La Jolla, and of course saw it when it ended up here in New York, and the show really was almost still in, really still in development when it played at La Jolla. Can you just talk about your, your perspective on it? Was you were in the ensemble, you had a couple of smaller roles in it. Can you talk about how that show came together? Because the show I saw... The first act seemed finished, but boy, when I saw that second act in New York, it was very different from California. You, you always lose. I always think of it as losing something when you go from a smaller space to the Broadway commercial space, and that's probably what you noticed. Because there was a, there was now on Broadway. There was now, you know, when we did Tommy, there was suddenly an exploding pinball machine. There were more special effects. You know, when you charge an exorbitant amount of money for a ticket price you feel like you have to <laughs> give the and when really they don't have to do either because the show worked well in La Jolla I thought but you're right it was continually developing I think the thing the, the things that were developing were the the technical elements of the show because there were a lot of a lot of those and those really kind of came into full bloom by the time it got to the St. James I think it was only you know six months later six months afterward I I played a loutette is what they called us. That there were the louts and the loutettes. You know, I was the one in the pleated skirt with the wool sweater that adds 15 pounds instantly. I'm like, geez, I wonder why they put me in the back row. I also understudied Marsha Mitzman, who played Mrs. Walker. And I got to go on very quickly, actually, with no rehearsal. So it was one of those, da-da-da, I did it, <laughs> Superman moments, you know. <laughs> and I did it. Then I did the same thing. I went on quickly in New York. So that was uh, that was a good experience learning how to pull that out of your back pocket, that understudy thing. But that was uh, an interesting path for me because I was in the show and I was watching Marsha out of the corner of my eye. And then when she would go out, I would just have to suddenly, I was suddenly wearing Mrs. Walker's costume. And to see a show that you're in from a different perspective within the show is a very interesting an educational experience. Suddenly, you're seeing a completely differently lit, compl differently lit, differently. It sounds different. It looks different from this perspective as Mrs. Walker than it was from my perspective as the Lautet. <laughs> and for a young actor, suddenly being almost cast off the back of a boat and told to swim, is that a good way to get to get into a, a show? Now you're, you're in it already, but to get into the the bigger roles, suddenly you're on, just do it. You don't have time to think yes, about it. Yes, I remember it. after I went on for Marsha in New York during previews, I went on for weeks. And, you know, I would go in, we opened in the spring, and, and I would go in to auditions because that that's typically a hectic audition time in the spring. 
And people, you know, the guys on the other side of the table would say, I saw you last night or I saw you last week. Go on as Mrs. Walker. It was great. Or that was must have been scary or that was impressive or good job, you know. And it definitely kind of um, helped people remember me in an audition situation because of kind of the drama of going on at the last minute. Um, and it was really good training. I think that uh, the, the understudy that went on for us recently, Morgan, Morgan, her, her name is Morgan Weed, right? Morgan. <laughs> He's not listening to me. I just know them by their email addresses now. I don't know their real names. <laughs> she went on recently for the, the actress Jen Damiano, who plays my daughter, and she went on with very little rehearsal, and she did a great job. And I was impressed because I know what that takes, the focus and the preparation that it takes to do that and make it look easy. And to be ready at a moment's notice, you're on tonight. Yeah, you, yeah. you kind of have to, again, the mental edge is mm-hmm. is key. Well, after Tommy, what was next? Was that Sunset Boulevard? Was then next? I did Sunset, yeah. From yeah. Pete Townsend to Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of a difference? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, they they both felt like big Broadway shows. There was no doubt that I was in a Broadway show. Now, you, you played Betty Schaefer in New York, and the show had originated in Los Angeles, but then Judy Kuhn, who did the role, got pregnant, I guess, yeah, she so did. she didn't do it in New York, so your good fortune was to get into the show. I, yeah, so after yeah. we opened, I sent her daughter, Anne, Anna, a note that said, thanks for being born, because <laughs> <laughs> you gave me a great job. Mm-hmm. And I was there for the entire run, which was two and a half years, and then suddenly we closed, and... Um, saw all the different Normas go through, go up and down the staircases. and So tell us about all the Normas. <laughs> <laughs> what was the experience um, of the different Normas? Well, I would say that Betty Buckley is Norma Desmond. She was f- quite phenomenal. Glenn Close is um, somebody that I try to emulate in on and off stage. And Elaine Page was just a delight. She and she was she was a big influence on me when I was learning how to sing too. Because the original chess recording on the LP, I always do this, make a big square. Um, I had in college, and she did some impossible things on that recording that nobody did back then. And now you hear them, you hear these high belty riffs, frequently from singers, and in shows. But back then, nobody sang like that. The high belt that they do in chess was, was unusual when it came out at the time. And, and I, I listened to it over and over in college. I wanted to be influenced by Elaine Page's technique because I think that it's kind of amazing. Well, working with these three different wonderful actresses, but different actresses as Norma, how did that influence you as Betty Schaefer, the character you played? Did, did you have to change your performance to work with the leading ladies? Not really because I didn't really do anything with Norma. Uh-huh. I was really Betty does all of her things with uh, Joe, with Joe and with Artie. Uh-huh. Who that was Alan Campbell and Vincent Tumio, and um, you know I Betty Schaefer is kind of a she's kind of a device in a way, and that's fine because they need to be there too. But I did kind of feel like I kept waiting for Angela Weber to give me my big my big number, my big coming of age number, <laughs> and it never happened. So I didn't really have. Any, I don't think I was ever on stage with Norma because the big number when she comes back to the studio and sings as if we never said goodbye, mm-hmm. I'm the only one not on stage for that. I, mean, I really? was the only one not on stage. Must have felt lonely. Yeah, because they did that on the Tonys and I, I was the only one not in the... That's oh, kind of, I sat at home and cried. That's kind of a bummer. Mm-hmm. You didn't even get to go to the show. 
I was invited to to sit with Andrew Lloyd Webber, and I turned it down. It might have been tougher sitting in the audience than watching at home. I, yeah, I kind of wanted to just sit in my pajamas. <laughs> and then I got to I got to go to a couple other Tony um, Tony award shows. So you know, later I got I got a chance to kind of do that. But the first one, I stayed home. Well, so that brings us to uh, the first one you were clearly invited to, Sideshow. Um, Sideshow was clearly put you on the map along with with your co-star in an extraordinary way. Can you talk about the coming together of that show and and what that relationship was with Emily Skinner? Oh, um, that show was like... Uh, it, it felt like falling in love with, you know, a really hot, sexy lover and just having a great time for a few months. And then suddenly you wake up and he's gone. And then you hear everybody else in town is sleeping with him. <laughs> That's what it felt okay, like. Explain that metaphor. <laughs> um, because the show was in t- it was blood, sweat and tears. It was intense and it was fierce the effort that we put into it and the fire that came out of it and then it was quickly extinguished when we didn't find an audience for anybody's the reason is anybody's guess and then suddenly the show was personal to everybody everybody who loved the show took it very personally to their heart and and luckily we did record we made a recording we put it on the sony classics and um you know, luckily we did record it because otherwise I don't know if people would still know about the show because it was 10 years ago. People still, kids come up and say, I love this show. Will you sign this for me? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it didn't find its audience, unfortunately, because I think that that show, like Next to Normal, that side show has the potential to bring people together, which is what I think theater ideally should be place for people to come together and and experience something intense together i've never seen theater as something that was strictly entertainment hmm. or escape but can you talk about developing the performance with emily you were playing for those who don't know the show you were playing conjoined twins at the time they were probably still called siamese twins in the period of the show and you were literally always on stage a adjoining another performer and while you were playing separate people you were always a unit how did that develop because it was done very simply but very effectively yeah um to this day i'm still called emily by by people that know me mm-hmm. <laughs> still and she is called alice by people and uh, you know i think that's a great compliment i i have a lot of admiration for her i think she's incredibly talented and i love her completely um, and I also feel like maybe they get us mixed up because we did such a great job at convincing them that we were twins. And I think when I speak, when I say we, I don't mean just Emily and I. I mean the David Brown who made our wigs and Bobby Longbottom who directed us and Henry who wrote the music and the lady Maria Varell who helped our ma- helped us with our makeup, the Greg Barnes who did the costumes. Everybody worked together to make us look identical and I think that for a while there we really did and and we tricked a lot of people so I think that's a compliment when they call me Emily and you know Emily and I are just getting to know each other now because um, when you spend eight hours a day sweating and spitting on somebody 
inadvertently, um, you know, at the end of the day, you don't necessarily want to go hang out. <laughs> you know, you go your separate ways. But we had an interesting creative process figuring out how to be separate people that were connected because Daisy and Violet, they only shared, um, you know, some flesh. It's called the fleshy link, I guess, is what we always joke. Um, we joke about it and call it that. They didn't share organs or bones or... I mean, today they would have just... It would have been very easy to separate them. But at the time they were born, in the early part of the last century, there was a lot of superstition surrounding their birth. Their mother was, you know, uh, uh, exiled from society, basically. Um, and they had no choice but to go out on their own, and, and they, they joined the sideshow circuit to to make money and they were cute and they were petite and quick to learn and they were troopers and so they became stars of the the carny circuit and this show sideshow told their story from when they were first starting out through through you know maybe 10 or 12 years later as they searched for love and understanding in a world that you know saw them as freaks and they really were just normal young women who just happened to be conjoined. And so in, in rehearsals, we wanted to make sure that that we were separate personalities, separate people who just happened to move together and also maybe think together because you're sharing elect, an electrical field with this person. You know, so you do have, you have simultaneous ideas. And so each entrance and exit, each cross across the stage... Each time we stood up or sit down, sat down, we had to decide in rehearsal, you know, who makes the first move here or do we do it together? Do you start to move across the stage and you catch me by surprise and I'm talking to somebody else? You know, there was a fight that we had in the se- in the first act called Why Don't You Leave Me Alone? And she's literally, I'm, we're pulling each other and pushing each other across the stage because we were having a fight. So it was kind of funny and very strange at the same time, but also kind of normal because they're sisters that are just having a fight. So that that I thought that that was an unusual thing. I've never done that before where I had to talk to the other actor about, you know, do you initiate this exit or do I initiate this exit? Who's the first one to sit down and who's the first one to stand up? Mm-hmm. And well, why, of course. You know. Did you do any special, shall we say, research? In other words, did you did you read up on the, on the Hilton twins? Did you talk to any real life, not necessarily conjoined twins, but twins to find out what twins are alike? I read a little bit. I didn't talk to any, any twins beforehand. I mean, since then, of course, people come up to me and introduce themselves and tell me their story that why they're a geek or who that they knew somebody who was a Siamese twin who was separated. Um, but I, I want there for some reason you know that that collective creative unconscious happens and, and you don't know how but it doesn't for some reason at the time we were in rehearsals there were a lot of shows on television about conjoined twins Siamese twins and the circus and for some reason I was seeing so I watched a lot of those I also read as much as I could about Daisy and Violet but frankly what was put out about them by the by the publications that covered their stories was like propaganda, you know, it was Daisy likes purple, Violet likes yellow, Daisy likes candy, Violet likes gum, you know, like that But it kind was of the thing. old days of PR where you didn't know if any of it, a word of it was true. Right, I mean, even today, you don't know if any of it's true. I mean, I don't, I don't think I know if any of it's true. But, yeah, so, but that informs it in a different way, but it still informs it, like, oh, isn't that interesting that nobody really knew who they, who they were. Hmm. 
you know, they had this dog and they had the dog and pony show literally going on. I keep using that expression, but it seems to follow me everywhere I go. Certainly people think that Sideshow is an unconventional musical, but I would say that your next Broadway musical appearance was probably a more unconventional musical, which was James Joyce's The Dead, which came out of Playwrights Horizons. Can you talk a little about that piece, which we call a musical, but in some ways was a play with songs, and it, it's, it's just, it was a very unique piece? Yeah, it really did feel like a play with music, but at the same time... It, it it felt like a musical because the songs move the story forward, which is my definition, and I think lots of people believe that too, of what a musical really is. Um, very unusual piece, very um, kind of uh, murky beginning with that piece that playwrights Jack Hofsis began as the director. Richard Nelson is the playwright, Sean Davey was the um, composer. I th- I'm pretty sure that that was his name. His last name was Davey. Um, <clears throat> Jack Hofsis then bowed out a couple weeks into rehearsal, and Richard took over as the director. Of course, he was already the playwright, and he, he was had his hand in two, going in two directions. And I think that he did... A really wonderful job. He's very sensitive, incredibly um, um, intelligent, and and kind of uh, capable person who kind of took over as director. And it was a really talented cast. The thing that I learned from that piece was how to act in the silence, what to do when you don't have any lines and you have your back to the audience for long stretches of time. Mm. Steven Spinell and I always talk about how this show, because he, he played Freddy in this piece, and, and we always we like to talk about this piece in terms of an ecosystem that exists on top of the script. Like if you saw the script laying on this table, you wouldn't see the show if you read the script. It, it, it exists like in your imagination in this almost tangible way. And so you'll, you'll go in that piece, the character that I played, Molly Ivers, and I think all of the characters went through this. I went through pages and pages and pages where I had nothing to say, and, and I didn't move, and I had my back almost to the, most of the audience. Well, it's interesting because many people, when they talk about that show, talk about the fact that it truly was a show where it was as if a fourth wall had been lifted, but the show wasn't always played out to the audience. It was played as if everyone was in a room together, and if your back was to the audience, your back was to the audience. It obviously had more craft than that, but but it was unusual in that way. Yes, it was, and I think that a lot of there were some people. The world was then divided into people that thought that was a good idea, and people that thought it wasn't a good idea. Um, I was among the people that thought it was a great idea because I was on stage and. You know, it's a great place to be. You don't have to deal with the conventions that the audience has to deal with. And I really enjoyed those long stretches of silence and and taking in the other actors and everybody around the table, you know, in the dinner scene that I'm talking about where I had my back to the audience. There were two people over here having their little story going on. There were two two people over here having their little silent story going on. Three people in the middle, and then and then you know the the peop- the actors that were talking and actually having a scene where they were talking over here. But then what was going on 
you know, underneath all of that was very interesting. And, you know, as an actor, the most powerful tool you have is your imagination. And so I really enjoyed the chance to play in my imagination for all, all those weeks doing that show and taking in the story with all my senses. And I would think you'd mentioned earlier about the change in a show when it moves from one venue to another. I would think that show must have changed enormously going from it was the old Playwrights Horizons, a very small space, into admittedly not the largest of Broadway houses, but onto a Broadway stage. Did the dynamic change? Definitely. And like I said with Tommy, the same kind of thing. Um, I always feel like you lose something because it, it feels like the show is kind of innocent in the beginning. And then when the money comes in, with I mean, I want money too. Everybody does. When it comes in, you, you definitely you, you give something up for that. Um, and so it's great to be involved in something in the beginning and then move with it because you get to you know have both worlds. I think that the show, I think that the Belasco was the perfect space for this show. I think it's a beautiful theater, intimate but stacked and you know those Tiffany windows up top and it's it's well the environment of the haunted. house and the environment of the house lent itself to even what was going on yes. on stage it's known as haunted and the set just worked beautifully you didn't really know where the set began and where the house ended and and um i thought that i actually thought that um it was just as beautifully staged and and rendered at the Belasco as it was at Playwrights. I know that the people that saw it at Playwrights, you know, hold that. And when they saw the people that saw it at both places, hold the Playwrights experience really close to them because it was very intimate. You know, so that was a really. It's not there anymore, but that was a really. They were like 160 small, seats, something like something that. Something like that. Um, and I really enjoyed. I very much enjoyed that piece. I was very sad when it closed. Again, it kind of I didn't expect it to close so quickly. M- missed it, but um, there was an audience for that. They were the smart C's. That's what Greg Mosher, our producer, called them, the smart C's, yeah. you know, the ones who really, really want to see art. And this was moving art. And those are the people that really, really enjoyed it. They liked that they were kind of like looking through the window at us having dinner together. You know, they they liked that part of it. And I, I always hope that, that I will be that kind of an audience member that will want to participate in whatever's being offered as opposed to deciding I didn't like the way it tasted or, you know, didn't well, like the way it looked. Well, that show, James Joyce's The Dead, closed in April of 2000. Roughly six months later, October that year, you started previews and revival of the Rocky Horror Show, which had been obviously done before. <laughs> the other end of the extreme. Version. So tell us about being Janet Weiss in the revival of Rocky Horror Show. It's interesting. I don't know how this is true, but I think it is true that, uh, you know, I do feel like Molly Ivers, and I also feel like there's a Janet Weiss in me, too, living there side by side. Um, Janet Weiss is, she's the ingenue. It was like my last stab at being an ingenue. <laughs> never happened again. Um, she's the ingenue that then, it's the Grease story, you know, you start out sweet and then you end up kind of tough and shiny um and jared emick played brad and you know he was we looked at each other (laughs) photo shoot we just like dressed up like the 50s you know they got that 50s all dressed in white white seersucker thing going on and just looked at him i said we are the whitest people i know and he goes (laughs) yeah i said but that's why we got this job so we should just be grateful (laughs) um 
I took my bra off during the number. That was like the thing that everybody wants to talk about now. You know, I saw you naked. <laughs> you brought it from up. across we the street. That <laughs> <laughs> was actually my idea because I felt like, um, you know, at that point in the show, everybody had been humping everybody else and all kinds of s- sexual innuendo had been going on. And so at that moment when Janet decides she wants to give it all up for the monster, you know, something further had to, something else had to happen. It had to be, you know, you would call it a wardrobe malfunction these days. <laughs> and I said, I'll just rip my bra off. And he said, and Chris said, that would be great. That was your idea. Yeah, yeah, it was. Chris yeah. Ashley said, sure, go ahead, do whatever you want. <laughs> Performing in that show, obviously people come to it with enormous expectation because they know the film and they have very set in their mind what it's going to be. And, of course, the film has become this great audience participation event. Did that immediately become part of the performance on on Broadway, did did it turn into more audience participation that went along? And how do you play if people are shouting out lines to you? Well, I have to say that this was not one of my most favorite experiences in theater <laughs> <laughs> because I just take it too seriously. Even the comedy, I take very seriously. You know, it just... And it did. It, it began... Um, you know, we started innocently enough because the first audiences to the show are always, and, and to the show that you're doing in New York, it's always the community, the the other theater people, the people in the industry, the you know, the people that write for the papers and stuff. And so they're, you know, they're going to be very supportive in general, I think. So it was really fun. But then, yeah, the line was crossed too early and too frequently for my particular comfort I just you know when I'm trying to sing there's a light over the Vegas I place and I'm like two feet away from somebody who's in the audience and he's squirting me he's just flat out squirting me in the face with like a super soaker mm-hmm. I just I don't know it's not easy for me to do my job at that point mm-hmm. because what I really want to do is walk over and grab the gun you know, grab it out of his hand and say you know, and squirt him in the face and then take it off stage and hide it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just feel like like that was that it, it crossed. They went too far and there was nobody there to say to say, you know, stop doing this. And then it, it just escalated from there. You know, it, it became like a frat party, which has never been one of my favorite places to be. And I don't mean to talk bad about the show because, you know, I did enjoy doing it. But the reason why I'm here talking to you is to talk about things that I believe strongly in. And so, you know, I think that that was going too far. When somebody, like, throws something and hits me in the face, mm-hmm. is that it really that's is that. different when you're throwing it at a screen? You know, I mean, it's a live actor, and I'm trying to do my job, and now you've got me worried about the mic. And, you know, again, I, I don't know, maybe I, I might have been the only one in the cast that felt this way. But I definitely felt like, I don't know if that kind of theater is really where I'm happiest. You know, there has to be some kind of convention set up where that that I have a place where I feel safe to do what I'm doing. And again, like it sounds silly because I was playing Janet Weiss. It's not like I was doing, you know, um, a classical, I was doing Medea or something. But still, there is there's a certain fo- there's a certain focus that you need to keep. Because you have responsibilities on stage, you got to m- hit your mark. 
You know, you've got to like sound and look great and make it look easy and all of that. And that show made it difficult to do that. It did. It did. But I, I you know, again, I don't want to say, I don't want it to sound like I didn't have fun doing it because I do. But I, I, I have very strong opinions about certain things. So let me ask you what may have sort of been the reverse of that. You mentioned earlier on that you did tell me on a Sunday down at the Kennedy Center. What's it like to be on stage where you are it? That was um, the opposite. That was terrifying, terrifying, and and I have to say that in next to normal, I often feel that way where it's kind of like up to me to get something spinning, and then somebody else will take over. But in Tell Me on a Sunday, I remember the orchestra was in another room because they they just wanted to keep all the seats open for people so that the orchestra was not in a pit and the, they were behind a fire door in the other room and they were piped in and i had a you know a video of steve marzullo who was my musical director but i walked on stage at the beginning with my suitcases and the sound of a jet plane going over my head you know and the lights shifting and i start the first number and i remember thinking I'm the only one who's responsible for pulling this off. Like, there's nobody else here but me. There's nobody there. There's not even anybody backstage, really, because I never left the stage. So that was terrifying. And every day, I re- at that moment, I had the same realization of, you know, I'd go through the same routine of, oh, my God, I'm all by myself. What's the next thing? Can I do this? I don't know if I can do this. And then the other voice goes, yes, you can. Just pretend like you're Emma and you just came from England and you're in New York. And then the song would start and I'd be fine. It's a case of once you're out there, it's okay. But the, yeah, you do ha- I did have to have that other voice that uh-huh. came in and said, you can do it. You know what you're doing. Don't worry. You know, because there isn't another, another face on stage to look. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm on stage with Brian Darcy James and but I look in his face, somebody, yeah. if I ever don't know where I am, I can look at him and, you know, he'll right. he'll take care of me. But when you're out there by yourself... You know, there is there's nobody else to bounce it off of. And with hundreds of people looking up at you, expecting yes, this wonderful performance has to be yeah. a little bit intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think there's like seventy minutes that that piece. Yeah. Let's just reiterate that currently you're in next to normal at second stage here in New York, playing Diana Goodman and uh, doing a, a terrific performance and eight shows a week. Very exhausting. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today, Alice. Thank on you Downstage very Santa. much, John. Thanks. Thanks, Alice. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.